Hello, Belinda. Hi, Omar. What is this week's gratitude blooming theme? It's card number 26, the poppy representing remembrance. Mm, I love the California poppy. Uh, it taps straight into my California pride. And uh, it's also a great jumping off point for the conversation that we have with our guest Norma Wong today. So I look forward to how she explores, you know, as a Zen monk and as someone who uh, is moving big change in the world, uh, is able to reflect uh, on the poppy with us. And we'll get to hear the artist Arlene share a bit about her remix of this theme and this plant and in her art and uh, the practice uh, at the end of this episode is going to be inspired by a poem that Norma shared with us. So I'm excited to share that with you all at the end of our episode. And as we dive into this theme of remembrance, it's just so timely with the holidays the, the time of year we're in, you know, Halloween, All Saints Day, Dia de los Muertos and some Latin American traditions, um, time of the year when we collectively in many traditions pause to remember our ancestors, remember the people that we are thankful for. And I just love this prompt that says, Remember someone you are thankful for. How can you honor them? So Arlene, I'm so curious as you were reflecting again on your connection with the poppy and this prompt and this virtue of remembrance, what came up? Well, I had a memory of um, the poppy that um, the original drawing of the poppy and um, how it was tied to um, really at the time um, Memorial Day here in the U.S. And um, and I think there's um, it's used as a symbol to honor, you know, honor the dead um, who died during war. And so maybe it is a good theme um, to revisit around the, around the Halloween and um, Day of the Dead holidays. I paired the poppy and our theme of remembrance with a red half circle on the lower left side of the drawing. The original pencil poppy drawing was made around Memorial Day, so I did have the image of the poppy as a symbol of remembrance when I originally drew it. More recently, I had a dream that I was floating in a sea of red, sort of how I imagine it would be to enter into one of Mark Rothko's red paintings. It was like having a direct experience of the color red. And it was a bit unsettling because it felt like blood swirling around in water. But in the dream, I wasn't scared, and the dream didn't feel terrifying. I told a friend about the dream, and their response was, That sounds beautiful. Blood is life. And that statement made me very uncomfortable for a moment, until I realized that our fear of blood is probably so strong because the flip side of that fear is the realization of this sheer beauty and miracle of life. It made me think of a poem by Rainer Maria Rilke, The Duino Elegies, where he equates beauty with terror. Here are the opening lines of the first elegy, translated by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy. If I cried out who in the hierarchy of angels would hear me? And if one of them should suddenly take me to his heart, I would perish in the power of his being. For beauty is but the beginning of terror. 
to me, what I think Rilke is saying is that the experience of true beauty, the kind of beauty inherent in our concept of the angelic, is terrifying, in part because it's a realization of how precious, fragile, and full of grace life and existence are. And our own blood running through our bodies, regulated by none other than our heart, is so terrifyingly beautiful because our life, all life, is so beautiful. So I hope adding the color red to this theme is not scary, but rather a remembrance of how beautiful it is that we are connected to all of humanity, past, present, and future, right down to the blood that runs through our bodies, the source of our lives, our existence here and now. Mm. Yeah, so many memories came flooding in as you shared your reflections, Arlene, and I love how you just, you embrace the simplicity and the boldness, you know, between your line drawings and the, these geometric shapes and primary colors. And I just, you know, I, I think back on the podcast we had with Araya called Blood Memory and Indigenous Practices. And then, you know, the poem, you know, like, who should hear this prayer? And I then thought of, Dr. Erica Powell and the episode, she's like, who's, whose inbox is getting my prayer and, and really coming to this realization that everything is alive and everything is listening. And so in some ways it's like, what's maybe even scarier than wondering whose inbox your message is going to is like, oh no, someone actually might be listening to this. And that is both beautiful and scary because then it's like, what does it mean to be really heard and listened uh, in that sort of mm, sublime way? And I, I really did visualize this. Um, what does it look like when blood and water come together? Um, I recently got some blood work done, just routine checkup. And it was interesting how scared I was of someone taking like seven vials of blood from me. And I, I, I couldn't even look to see what he was doing because I was terrified. And I think in me, it's like this fear of dying, right? When, when you see a lot of blood, it oftentimes represents dying. And I love how you're re reflecting that on the other side of our wholeness, which is this, that blood is what, you know, is also a reminder of, of, of life. And, and, and I think of, um, this, this prompt of like my mother, you know, what did it take for her to physically bring me into this world? And it's beautiful. And it's also painful, you know, physically that process. And then, and then my mother's mother and my mother's mother's mother. And, and it's just, it's just, it's just this duality that, um, that is so beautiful and terrifying at the same time. So I really appreciate you bringing both of those and, and I guess my own fear of death, maybe it's a reminder of how much I love life. And sometimes I forget that because I tend to fixate on all the things that haven't yet been completed. And what else I have to do or what problems I have to solve. And this is such a good reminder of that um, attachment to life means that I care about it. And I, I love it to some extent, even if it is painful. <laughs> Appreciate the paradoxes mm. that we get to explore each week. And I think that was, that's the thing is like, these are just all reminders. You know, it's like how easy it is to go to sleep, to sort of go numb, to forget. And it really is, you know, uh, and I think our guest today, uh, the Abbot Norma Wong, and, you know, she's says habit is everything that we do by default. It's like everything that it's like our auto reply sort of message. 
and practice is anything that disrupts habit. And so just remembrance is the practice of not forgetting those who've come before us. Hey, Belinda, I love that we're growing more gratitude in the world. And part of the way that we're doing that is collaborating with other podcasts, including Better Place Project. Uh, I was recently a host on the show uh, talking about gratitude with Steve Norris. He and I got to talking about how do we just help promote and share what we want to see in the world. So yeah, we invite you to check out Better Place Project, where each week, They shine a light on amazing humans doing extraordinary things who share their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, and more purposeful lives, which is in such alignment with this whole podcast of collective acceleration through gratitude, nature, and art. So to add a little more joy and inspiration to your day, head over and subscribe to Better Place Project wherever you get your podcasts. I'm so excited to share these rich, robust uh, gems of wisdom from Norma. And you'll hear some longer clips um, from her just sharing on her rich perspective on the world and just what she sees as someone that is holding space for our collective acceleration. And we're going to start by just hearing her reflection of this prompt and her perspective on ancestral connection, past, present, and future. Just before you share, I think I just say that I had the the fortune of getting to practice with her for the last two years. She led a series um, called Collective Acceleration, The Art of Waging Peace. Uh, and then she led it again this year and invited me Uh, to participate uh, as a poet. And she recently published the poetry along with some art from other people. And and the opening of the booklet, it's called In the Art of Waging Peace, The Heart is Everything. And she writes, as we practice the art of waging peace, we embrace art. Art supports our leap beyond simplistic understanding. This is our gift to each other as we embrace the challenge of tumultuous times. And she's someone who isn't just coming to this work of large scale change as uh, a Zen monk. You know, she actually was a state legislator. You know, she worked uh, for the governor of Hawaii, John Wai, and you know, has been active in organizing uh, in the Native American, Native Hawaiian and indigenous communities. And so just, I really appreciate the full range of tools, like knowing the inside game of politics, knowing sort of ancestral practices, knowing spiritual discipline and practices, and just really how do we bring all of these tools together to create the beautiful world that we know that is in our hearts and is possible. As this beautiful card came into view, uh, I was suddenly flooded by all kinds of um, memories and faces and voices. Uh, Too many to be able to say exactly who it is they are without naming them all. It's a, it's an interesting thing, the notion of remembering someone you are thankful for, and that as immediately as you might see those words and see the beautiful redness, the darkness of that poppy, that everything would be immediately flooded, immediately flooded. Certainly ancestors recently passed and passed for many years. Uh, people for whom I follow in the footsteps of 
that I know and that I have not met, but know from others. And then, of course, you know, there's, there's just my sister, who I had the wondrous aspect of, uh, before I left my house this morning, taking her phone in for her because she had set the alarm, but had put the phone in my room rather than in hers. Ancestry to me is, uh, not a just, not just about lineal descendancy. You know, so, uh, it, I can understand the attraction that modern people have to, you know, things like ancestry.com and things like that. Um, I can understand the attraction they have to that because they have uh, a way in which modernity has cut most people off from the notion of being part of a continuum and that to lose your indigeneity is to lose that, that you are descendants of ancestors and at that moment that you say that you are an ancestor of descendants, even though you may not have any children, as I, you know, I have no children, and yet there will be many, many, many people who will follow. And and I would say, not as a matter of being students, but they're literally just people who we are all in relationship with, uh, irrespective of whether or not those are close relationships or not. And if they live beyond our time, then they are our descendants and their descendants or our descendants as well. So this aspect of this continuum that you live in, that you are a part of that, you know, certainly in this one life, only one life, you know, I come from that spiritual path where that is so, you know, in this one life. But in this one life, I may have many lives as I make a choice every day with respect to what it is that I do, who it is that I choose to be. And in all of that, though, there is something that is ancient that goes beyond that moment that you were born. You know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm a fan of Banke. You know, B-A-N-K-E-I. So here's this radical teacher um, that was not part of much institution. And so, therefore, the what we know of him is not because something was left behind you know, in terms of students or things of that sort. But Vanke talked a lot about the unborn mind. So... We are in such a state of originality if we choose to connect in that way so that we were literally part of an unborn mind. You know, it's like in this one life, I have just this one life. But the part of the energy existence of what I, it is I am is vast and ancient. And so when I remember, I am remembering that connection that I have, that connection that I have that goes all the way to stardust. So I totally got excited about this teacher, Bonke, and as I am want to do, tend to then do a a rabbit hole dive and started reading um, a book of uh, talks. And I think he's from like the 12th century. Um, And the unborn mind, I just, I love that idea. I've heard of the Zen beginner's mind, right? The beginner's mind, everything is possible into the expert's mind. Few things are. And so the unborn mind was like, even before the beginner's mind, there is something. 
And, you know, he describes in one of his talks that he, he's talking to some villagers um, and he's like, you came here with the intention to hear me speak. And as you, you know, have been standing here listening, you may have noticed the chicken, you know, clucking or the dog barking or people who are walking by chattering. You didn't have to think about, oh, is that a chicken clucking or a dog barking or someone who is just passing by? You already knew that. So that is your unborn mind. It already knows things without you having to have even the intention of making a distinction. And so it's been really fascinating to really be aware of like, well, what is my unborn mind? What is paying attention and can make a distinction to something, not because I have intellectually processed it or been taught it, um, but just because it's there. You know, and it, you know, in some ways, an easy way to do this is pain. Like nobody teaches you like, oh, this is pain. You're like, oh, this hurt, you know, and like your unborn mind is like, hey, this hurts. Uh, and so how we can kind of just process information and sort of be open to possibility, um, you know, has really been um, a beautiful thing to bring into my meditation and just like my daily walks. I was really struck by how Norma doesn't talk about the remembrance as one specific person in time. You know, she talks about her sister you know, a, a recent, you know, interaction with her sister, but it was just this flooding of memories and people and this continuum of, of the past and the present and the future. And um, it's just a really interesting way of looking at ancestry and, and just, it's, I, f I feel like what comes, the image that comes to mind is like a spiral, even more than like a linear timeline i appreciated also the sense of humor she had about her sister being like yeah she left her phone in my room with the alarm on thanks <laughs> sis and that was the subtext that i heard at least <laughs> yeah and you know towards the end of the conversation we got to really understand who norma is from the perspective of her as a child. And I, I got, I felt inspired to share this part of her as we're talking about lineage in the beginning, closer to the beginning of this episode, because I think it gives us a lot more uh, insight into her and her background and, and who she was as a six-year-old and who she is now as a 66-year-old. Um, so we're going to hear her kind of, share her perspective on her lineage and and how she's looking at her life now in the present moment. Norma as an adult is very thankful uh, that uh, that I get to have another chance at childhood. Yeah, so Norma as a child was a much too serious being. No sense of humor what's in that. You know, like a, if, uh, you know, so I'm 66. I was born in 1956 in the territory of Hawaii. So we didn't become a state until 1959. In that complicated space, uh, in which, you know, the sort of the, what becoming was for a place that had an aspiration and also a ambivalence about whether or not we would become a part of a state or not. Uh, that, uh, as a, as a, as a child, I thought about those things, which is not the normal things that you would think about. And it, it's, it's, that's a totally twisted thing for a child to be thinking about. It's a, the, um, I was 
overly serious. I, uh, you know, for example, you know, I don't know when it is that you're going to be uh, uh, putting this podcast on, uh, but we are recording it in the season that most people think of as the season that you begin to uh, build up your chops for Halloween. And as a child, I thought that was a particularly silly and stupid thing to do. Why would you uh, you dress up and in particular put a mask on so people wouldn't know who it is that you are, um, that you would go and and allow yourself to be inspected and beg for things that you didn't necessarily want to eat? I mean, I thought that was a a silly and stupid thing to do. You know, I, as a, there are pictures of me, you know, a, a, as soon as I got a little old enough to be able to uh, take my younger siblings trick-or-treat, uh, and I would refuse to wear the costume, so I'd be there in my civilian clothes, you know, my little corduroy pants, you know, that with the elastic waist, uh, my shirt that had, uh, you know, that had um, uh, uh, stripes on it and um, uh, short sleeve shirt because October in Hawaii is still warm. And, uh, you know, and in my little tennis shoes there. And you would see me like standing there with a grumpy look on my face. You know, just grumpy. Right? and. And probably saying something like, don't take that. You don't eat that. You know, it's, you know, something like that. So I was totally over serious. I was also, you know, there's a, um, uh, probably a reason for that. You know, uh, I was born without much uh, depth perception with respect to uh, how my eyes coordinate or don't coordinate with each other. And so, therefore, there was a lot of uh, schoolyard activity that wasn't uh, a good thing for me to do. You know, it's like you cannot see how close or how far a ball is. You're not going to be involved in a lot of schoolyard activity. That meant that I became a observer of what was happening in the schoolyard. I would sit on the stoop and sit in the yard and watch the activity and do that. So I remember all of that. I remember it not with bitterness, but a sense of head scratching. It's like, how could I have spent my time doing that? What was that about? I don't think that I was unhappy. Right? I think uh, I don't have a, a, a sense of any of that. I don't have a sense of, of um, aloneness or separateness. It probably prepared me for the life that I have now, which is before the pandemic, uh, I I traveled a lot during the work that I do, more as a wandering monk than anything else. Always coming back to Hawaii as home. And now not traveling as much. But if I see people far and few between, that would be okay with me. And yet I have this complete sense of the necessity for us to be in relationship of deep mutuality, interconnectedness, to be able to come into this moment and change the course of human history. 
So you can count me as, you know, as a someone who didn't have a sense of humor until over the age of 50. I love that self-reflection and just seeing the lineage in her own history, right? That remembrance of who she herself was and who she is now and what has stayed the same, that observer self possibly, but also, hey, I can have a sense of humor. Right? I can, I can treat some of this with a little bit of joy and lightness as well. It's making me think of this prompt in a different way, which is, you know, thinking about someone you're thankful for. It can also be a version of yourself from the past. And in some ways, what I sensed from her reflecting on that in such great detail is is this um, gratitude that she has that sense of humor now and that the serious child who was worried for for her land and the ambiguity around the land you know that there was a a role that that serious child played for her to be who she is now navigating uh life post wandering monk years you know yeah i definitely had a flashback to my young corduroy wearing days and as a young boy who loved to clamor over everything patches in both knees um i don't think i complained about halloween though <laughs> i was cool with that tradition <laughs> yeah it's so timely as this podcast is being released and we're looking at this time of year with memories and honoring traditions. So there's a really interesting point in the conversation, Omar, when you asked Norma about this idea of collective acceleration, which she coined for for this container that you're in together. And, and, you know, why is it important for us to think about collective acceleration and, and why do we need it right now? And, you know, it, it really gave me some new perspective too around time and this point in history that she references. You know, this season we titled um, our podcast Collective Acceleration uh, in honor of uh, the work that you're, you're leading I'd love for you to share what collective acceleration means to you and probably more importantly, why do we need it? Okay. Uh, it's a, you know, those two words came to me during the um, beginning of the quarantine, actually. And so there's a, it was actually quite jarring. Uh, it's um if you rest well every day, then one of the things that will happen is that in the early morning, uh, just as you awaken, uh, it's it's as if you are you have a clean slate, you know, so you, your mind is not cluttered with many things. You haven't carried over a residue of that, and in that space that is more fertilely empty than not. Uh, you know, just thoughts will arise. And one morning I got up and uh, those thoughts arose. And I thought at that moment, what a paradox it is in, because we were in that period where everything had come to a sudden halt. In Hawaii, similarly to many places, I'm sure, but because a good part of our economy is driven by the activity of people who travel to the state, the notion that you would go from 85% occupancy of your hotel rooms to 15% occupancy in 10 days is very jarring. Everything stopped. All traffic stopped. No 
commutes occurring in the morning. The sounds began to become quieter. And in that time space of quiet, I could feel how everything was moving faster. And that it wasn't because it was moving faster at that moment, it's because I was noticing that it was moving faster. Which is to say that things have been moving faster for some time. But because our lives are busy and filled with all kinds of noise all the time, even for those of us who spend time each day carving out that space and making sharp choices. So even for us who meditate more than not, there is still this way in which our lives are filled. And in that space of filled lives, there could be profound movement or lack of movement that we are literally not sensing. Our consciousness isn't open to it. So in that moment, when the entire world came to a more quiet place, I could feel the phenomena of this way in which everything over the last few years had been speeding up. Speeding up in ways, of course, the largest phenomenon of that, which uh, scientists have pointed out for years, is uh, climate change. And yet, it hasn't been until recently where people have actually seen ice flows just fall apart into the ocean that people would lift up their heads and they would see it. And if you think of the extraordinary phenomena of the universe that would have to occur for these huge blocks of ancient ice to cleave and to fall, it would have to be extraordinary phenomena that would have to have occurred and that it is this aspect of acceleration is about this energy building up over time and coming into a momentum in of itself. So everything is accelerating, including our grievances, right? including the ways in which we feel our separateness from each other, including the collapse of institutions and all of these things. And the real question to me is whether we collectively arise into this and accelerate our evolution in this process, or whether we allow ourselves to just get carried over in the tide and collectively devolve. I appreciate how she can bring both just that momentary experience that we all felt uh, during the beginning of quarantine and that slowing down to in this meta moment of something like climate change and how are we going to respond? And I also just appreciate that she says like, Hey, we can respond, right? We're not helpless uh, to this moment. Um, and I, and I kind of have this feeling of a record player, right? Old school here where the outer part of the record is moving faster, uh, or I guess, yeah, is moving faster than the inner part of the record, which enables you to move slow. And like, where are we on that continuum? You know, are we giving ourselves time to process the change? Are we just sort of 
feeling like we're on a hamster wheel and just running furiously to stay in place. Uh, and, and, and I think what I hear is, is a moment to evolve, to shift our consciousness, to shift our thinking so that it's not just this matter of running in place, but really how do we move forward? When I feel the weight of her words, the gravity of her words, the second time now, I had my eyes closed when I was listening this time. It made me think of, you know, how many times have I missed the momentum and the gravity of the change because I was too busy to pay attention and the words really landed for me in that it's happening. (laughs) You don't have a choice. The change at that magnitude is happening. So how are you going to be present to that in how you live your life? And I've been sitting with that since that conversation and, um, and grateful that we, got to a place where she was able to share a little bit of her perspective on also, yeah, how do you practice then? (laughs) You know, I think there's ways in which our trauma responses kick in where it's like fight, flight, fight, flight, or freeze. And um, it's really easy to be frozen (laughs) or lose all of your energy because you're fighting for every single thing. And that just can't be like, that's not sustainable. Um, so in, in this uh, next clip, she talks about, well, what are the practice ways that we can all um, be aware of for ourselves? And I invite you as you listen to her sharing, just what comes up for you in a feeling or maybe what you notice in your body as you're receiving this uh, wisdom from Norma. There are all kinds of practice ways that need to come into place in order for us to live under the most extraordinary circumstances and be the extraordinary beings that we can be. That is a human possibility. It is that which the animals and the plants and the insects cannot do. There's been quite a bit of research done in the last few years. Technology now allows neuroscientists to look at brain activity while the human is still living versus just a few years ago, right? You you actually could not do that. You cannot look at human brain activity in that same penetrating way and still, uh, and for the human to still be alive. But now you can't. And one of the things that has been uh, discovered is that when the amygdala, that part of your brain that is ancient and is really the part where when you once you get into it, you're nothing but either fighting or running away, fight or flight. When you're in that space, what neuroscientists have been able to discover is that at that time, when your amygdala is lit up, your prefrontal cortex goes dark. And the reason why that may be important for us to know on a scientific basis is, is that what is known is, is that that part of the brain that is like at, at your forehead, the prefrontal part, the prefrontal cortex, it is the part of your brain that in which executive decision-making occurs. Complex choices are only available when that part of your brain is operating. And when you are in that place of panic or great fear 
or anger or overriding emotion where your breath is high up in your body and it's in your chest region or even in your throat, when you're breathing very rapidly, when you've lost contact with your sensories and you feel hypersensitive, but literally you cannot feel the ground under your feet. When you're in that state where you everything has closed down and all you can see and think about is the object and it becomes an object, the object of your anger or your fear or your loss or or your love, when all you can do is feel that and see that, then you're operating entirely out of your amygdala and you're incapable of executive decision-making. And in order for us to become on a collective basis or even on an individual basis, we have to be able to make choices. Make choices and then implement them and interrupt the habit patterns that keep us in a state of drift or keep us in a state of mourning or keep us in a state of anger. To be in love with our eyes wide open rather than head over heels in love. It's that that groundedness requires us to be in the entirety of ourselves. And in order to do that, we have to have a healthy operating prefrontal cortex. So much poetry and science all at the same time. I uh, was really feeling the the being in love with eyes wide open. Just um, how easy it is to be escaping, you know, life by either feeling too much of something and being overwhelmed in a state of drift and just how we can feel and also be grounded in in what we feel what we notice and what we need to do like that all of those pieces around the biological and the heart the attunement of the heart really came together when she shared. I've known my wife now for 34 years and I think it was maybe 31 years ago or so that we dated uh, as junior and seniors in high school. And it was that head over heels, that tumultuous uh, sense of feelings and emotions, that puppy love, big eyes, sad eyes, you know, bounding with happiness. And then, you know, the sky is falling um, when things didn't go well to where we are now, you know, um, with a daughter who, uh, an older daughter who's the age that we were when we first met, you know, and we're still exploring and discovering um, each other and our lives. And so I just, I can feel that sort of the expanse between those sort of feelings and just what does that groundedness look like for us, not just on an individual basis, um, but as a collective basis, like how do we ground each other so that we can be supportive, right? That the love can persevere, um, that the love can grow, that we can become nurturers um, 
for what comes next. Uh, obviously, I don't think there is anything more urgent for us to do, you know, and in some ways, and as she says, how do we move from even just the doing or the being to really the becoming? How do we create that kind of container? There is this urgency that we are, that's calling to us at this moment. But let me be clear that it's only calling to people for whom that is so, which is to say that we shouldn't go around uh, trying to convince people that it's an urgent moment. This is one of those things where the flowers bloom because the seeds are there. And that it would be foolish for us to attempt to either scratch the ground until we found the seeds or or cast seeds on ground that is not yet fertile. So the wondrous aspects of California poppies is that they are in the most unexpected places. And they choose to do their thing wherever they happen to be. Uh, they're protected, my understanding, under California law. And they're protected uh, for the purposes of allowing them to continue to just do their thing and offer, therefore, their beauty for anyone and everyone. Um, if they exercised choice uh, to not bloom in a particular year, they would be missed. And the the difference between uh, poppies and humans are vast, but the characteristics that we want to pay attention to um, is that we actually can exercise more choice than poppies. So the question becomes, will we choose to bloom at this moment or will we stay in the ground? And I would say that it's the time within the space of human time is not vast and luxurious in terms of us making that choice. I also have the sense that this is not the first time in human history where that has been the case. Yeah. Um, we are all of the same ancient peoples. The DNA information tells that to, to be so. And as we became different peoples and we traveled across the land masses that no longer exist and built boats to travel across oceans and were part of that first migration where we became many peoples. We had to have been making choices at that time to do that. And we had to have been doing that on a collective basis because if we did it as individuals, we literally would have no humans today because we would not have survived as peoples. As a species, we would not have survived. It would have to have been a huge collective endeavor. That may have been the first collective moment. I don't know. But throughout history, there have been these moments. And we are in one of those now. So we are in that paradox, which is to say that the becoming requires us to open up the spaciousness 
in order for us to stretch what time space looks like to do the really big leaping that is required. And it will be called luxurious by people for whom the urgency of everyday living means you can't open up that space. But that is exactly what is necessary. I came across a a poem that I carried with me for several years a while back, and it was still in my papers. Can I share it with you? Please. Yeah. Uh, this is, it's, it's pretty ancient. It's circa around 7.30, around that time period. In the part of the world that's now called China, um, it's attributed to Han Shan, but Han Shan is thought by um, scholars to actually be a pseudonym for a particular group of poets. And they kind of wrote poetry and, it, and you know, and distributed them as this one person, even though they were not one person. So, if you're always silent and say nothing, what stories will the younger generation have to tell? If you hide yourself away in the thickest woods, how will your wisdom's light shine through? A bag of bones is not a sturdy vessel. The wind and frost do their work soon enough. Plow a stone field with a clay ox, and the harvest day will never come. For those of you who hear the poppy, who hear that collective acceleration, whose seeds are emerging or growing, this is what we're here for. And we want to hear from you and really open this conversation. We don't have a podcast just to have another voice in the world. We have a podcast to build that future that we want to live in. So this is an invitation and we hope that you reach out. We hope that we come together to do the work that needs to be done. So as we close with this beautiful old ancient poem I invite you to think about this moment in time that we're in this moment in time of your life and if you were to look back at this moment in time in 20 30 years or longer What is it that you want to remember about how you showed up? How you were present in this moment? And from this place of groundedness, with loving with your eyes wide open, what is it that you feel inspired to do, to be, to see in this time. If it's helpful, you can pause this podcast or do some writing or just hold that memory in your heart for what you want to remember when you look back at this time about you and how you showed up. Thank you, as always, Belinda, for the invitation, Arlene, for the stories and art, and Brian for creating the container of producing the show, and for our listeners, who are more than listeners, part of a community um, of people who are trying to bring uh, out together what we think is possible and if you feel inspired to bring these conversations into your life around the holidays around the table as you are connecting and nourishing with others or thinking about celebrations that you're going to have at work 
um, in other parts of your life with your community, we invite you to bring the spirit of gratitude blooming with you. The podcast episodes are a way to shine a light on what does it look like to share your story with vulnerability in the way that encourages this deeper sense of being seen and heard. And and so we invite you to bring the gratitude blooming cards, the decks, uh, to pick a card at random or intentionally going through all 39 to see how this can be language for new conversations, new ways of seeing each other. And for this holiday season, we have a a 20% off promo code uh, bloom 22. And you'll be able to enjoy that for uh, the rest of the year. Um, So just go to our shop at gratitudeblooming.com and enjoy this 20% off everything in our shop. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.